Hey folks, before we get started, I just want to let you know about my upcoming book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. If you're looking for a job or you think you might be looking for a job in the future and you're trying to up your mobility and meet new people and things like that, this book walks you through the whole process. Go ahead and check it out. It comes out on November 20th. It'll be on Amazon and you can find it as The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we're going to be talking about deviating from the Rails core. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. This is a topic that Dave recommended. I'm kind of wondering, Dave, like, what are you working on? (laughs) (laughs) So I think, you know, first off, and I'll just kind of give this little preface to how I feel. I don't really care for JavaScript frameworks. I think they add complexity, overcomplicate things. I don't care for microservices. I think they add so much complexity. And we are deviating from something, a framework that gives us so much and it is constantly being improved that gives us so much stuff with stimulus JS and with action text and all these other things that we are just continually getting for free within this framework. So I think that a lot of times we're jumping the guns to go to React, Angular, Vue, or we are breaking up our monolith into microservices. Now, that said, I say this all in the perspective that we are talking about smaller applications, applications that are not serving millions of requests per second. I think that once you hit a certain kind of threshold, you then have to start rethinking your architecture or, you know, probably well before then, but you're going to see many warning signs of that coming either having to horizontally scale massively to handle the requests, or you are just seeing some real slowness within the application. But I don't think that it should be something that we jump to as a first option. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I, I think I have... How do I put it? I, we'll just say a different view, because I'm not sure how to characterize the difference. I was going to say maybe a more nuanced view, but... I, I think it's just different, right? It's not more detailed or, um, you know, maybe we're going to say the same thing, but it varies a little bit. I think there's something to be said for if you sit down and you work out some of the architecture in your system and you realize that you need, you know, you're, you're going to want a front-end framework, you probably want to start with one, right? Rather than try and fold it in later. It's like, okay, you know, we're starting small, 
and then we're going to grow up to the point where we're going to need it and then we pull it in. In some cases, it may be easier just to stick it in there in the first place. And so that's, I guess, where the difference is. But yeah, I generally agree with you. If if you don't need the sort of front-end powerhouse features that you're going to get out of a front-end framework, you may want to just see how far you can get with something like Rails, TurboLinks, you know, pull stimulus in if you really feel like you need that and just see how far you can get on kind of a minimal front end. I, I, I agree with you to that yeah. extent. I think some people are just going to look at it and say, yeah, the box that we're going to wind up painting ourselves into, is it's easier just to add React in now or add Angular in now or something. And I think that if you have that kind of foresight, then we're not talking about the majority of the applications. We're talking about now yeah. the 1% of special cases like Gmail. I think Gmail would probably not be a great user experience if it was a refreshed application. Whereas something, you know, anything else, someone's normal website, then it could be a, you know, overkill. And most of the websites that I'm seeing, they are. They're based around sort of the enter data into the form kind of model and then... You know, you go manipulate it, which is all all can be done over refreshes and showing it, which can also be done over refreshes. And the rest of it doesn't have to be that complicated because the UI isn't actually... I mean, it is in the sense of usability, but it's not critical to what the app actually does. Yeah. And look at a lot of these smaller dev shops who create websites or web applications for clients. I think that in a lot of cases, they are jumping to React. And I think that... In a lot of these situations, they are sometimes being dictated by the client. So the client is saying like, hey, we heard about this React. It's popular. There's so many developers on it. We want our application developed in that. But we also need this a little bit more complicated backend because we're going to have some contact forms. We're going to have some user interactions. So you know, we need to have it backed by a database too. But we definitely want the front end to be in React because that way we're going to be able to find all the developers in the world to be able to support this for now and in the future. Which, coming from having worked on uh, more recently a Backbone application, I think that's really poor logic. So React is a little bit different because it's not going anywhere. It is backed by a relatively large company And I think that it has a lot of community support. Backbone, on the other hand, it had a lot of community support, but it wasn't really backed by any big company. And as other frameworks came out and improved on what Backbone had started and was doing, Backbone just kind of got forgotten about. But now you have a framework that not a whole lot of people have intimate knowledge with, and you're having to support it. So not only is your job a bit harder now, had they just stuck to the Rails core, and if they had just followed, you know, added in some JavaScript sprinkles as needed, then they would have been much better off because then this application would be more easily supported. Yeah, I tend to agree. In your case, we're talking about not deviating from the Rails core. Yeah, and... Again, I'll just kind of plug this. I think that React solves a problem that a lot of companies or some companies may have, and that's great, and I support that. 
it also solves a problem that a lot of other companies don't have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, for you personally, maybe, I'm curious. Where were you going? Maybe I'm just very limited in my scope of what I develop on, but I've never had a situation where if only I were using React, my life would be easier. If only I was using Angular, my life would be easier. Yeah, that's fair. The I think there are gradations to this too, right? I mean, if we're talking about mm-hmm. deviating, we're I mean, we're mostly talking about on the view layer. Back in the day, the big deviation was putting Hamel in, right? Or or slim or something. And now we're getting to the point where it's, you know, we're we're basically letting the front end framework take over the entire front end. I think there are levels to this as well, right? Where you add nice effects to it, like what Basecamp does with stimulus, you know, down to it's just HTML and maybe you have a few not even through stimulus, but just a few DOM manipulation things that you just kind of stick in there with, you know, straight up JavaScript APIs. I'm a little curious to see, you know, how far down this road do you wind up going then? Do you pull in a library like stimulus or jQuery, or do you not even pull that in? So I think that jQuery is a lot more invasive than stimulus. So yes. there definitely has to be a distinction there. If I were to pull in jQuery into my application and use it all over the place, then I have significantly tied my application's dependencies with jQuery. Stimulus, on the other hand, is very isolated. You have some HTML markup through element attributes that you're adding in. But other than that, you can completely isolate all of your stimulus code. And it's not even really stimulus code. It is just a stimulus library that you're creating classes around it. And from there, it just kind of works. So you're going to still be able to reuse probably a lot of that code within these classes or controllers, as Stimulus calls them. And you're going to be able to then migrate to something else down the road if you want without too much rework. But, you know, I think jQuery kind of got the shaft on this because I really like jQuery. It made DOM selecting so easy. Even today with ES6 and everything else, DOM selection, yeah, there's more documentation around how to do it and examples, and you can just kind of copy and paste from there, but still just not as simple as what jQuery was. So I do miss some aspects of jQuery, and the DOM element selection is definitely one of them. Yeah, I mean, I remember pre-jQuery, and you could try and use Prototype, which was better than what was there before it. But I mean, options just weren't ideal in a lot of cases. So I have a lot of appreciation for jQuery. So the the issue there is, is that, yeah, you know, stim- stimulus, I like the fact that you can pull it out and not, you know, ruin your dependencies. I've also thought about, you know, some of the niceties with just having all the components and just saying, hey, there's this component that does this thing. And, you know, you can define all of the behavior and encapsulate it in one place which kind of goes a little beyond the JavaScript sprinkles that we talk about when we're talking about stimulus. So I don't know. I, I mean, I can kind of see where people are coming from using any of these tools. But yeah, you know, as far as like your load times and your site size and things like that, I mean, stimulus is definitely much more lightweight than any of the others. And in a lot of cases, 
yeah, you can just kind of drop what you need in and get away with a lot. So I don't know. There are some things I really, really like about Vue. Vue is the one I've been playing with lately. But that said, I mean, I can also see a world where I don't necessarily need it. I've also been playing a little bit, though, with um, you know writing the entire app in something like Vue. So I don't even have a backend at all other than what loads up the static HTML page and then it connects to some API if it needs you know, some minor amounts of data or something. And so it's all front-end. And that's, an, that's another interesting exercise. But yeah, I think it depends on the app you're building and how you want it to operate. Like you're saying, in a lot of cases, you could get away with a server-rendered page built in Rails that just kind of does what it does and has some JavaScript to augment the parts that need it. Yeah. What what about other kinds of deviations from the Rails core? I mean, I've seen people build stuff in where they're using something like Mongoid and Mongo, or they pull it, you know, so the ORM layer is different. Or they put some layer on top of the view rendering layer to get statically rendered React or Angular or something like that. So here's a funny story that I experienced this past year. And it's with searching, doing a full text search. So on Drift and Ruby, I was using Elasticsearch to handle the searching of episodes. And why not? Because that's a great full text search engine where I'm able to go in and you know, provide results based on the user's input. And that worked great for several years. But the drawbacks of that is, one, I have complicated my infrastructure a bit more by adding in an additional dependency. I wasn't, at the time, getting the traffic to justify going to something like a full-text search where a query on the database would have been just as performant and it would have made no difference to the end user. So what ended up happening was the Elasticsearch service that I was using, so it was in AWS, it just stopped working. You know, I had a backup index, so I was paying for essentially two services there, and it just stopped working. I started to debug it and try to figure out what's going on, and the more I got into it and started thinking about it, like... I started thinking, like, have I prematurely complicated my infrastructure and my application by using Elasticsearch? And so I ended up figuring out the issue, got the application back up and running, but then I started to refactor and to remove Elasticsearch from my application entirely. And so now Drift and Ruby's running without Elasticsearch. It's just doing the SQL queries on the database and it's just as performant. I'm not missing anything from there. So by deviating from the Rails core of just using the existing uh, ORM active record to do my queries and searches, I was not only spending more money, I was complicating my infrastructure, and I was adding essentially a level of technical debt where... I then had to spend man hours to try and resolve issues that was caused by this decision. So how did you get around using Elasticsearch then? I'm kind of curious. So I was basically just doing queries 
So on Dredger Ruby, it really keys off of just a few different fields when doing the search. Because it's just a one text box where you type in a few keywords that you want to find an episode on. And it's going to search the title, the description, and the tags. And between those three things, I just created a query that would search them and prioritize based on which one was finding the hit. And luckily, I had extracted out all of my searches and the queries. So I didn't even put them in the model as a scope or anything like that. I created a episode search class a few years ago. And that episode search class then would call a method. That method would then do the elastic search and then it would return the active record relation results. So I only had to go into these search classes that I had created originally to then just modify that one little bit of line of code and then remove search kick from my application and then just the little sprinkles of search kick throughout within the models and you know that kind of stuff. So it was actually mm-hmm. a very minimal effort to remove it from my application because at least I did have the foresight of extracting away the code to a point to its own responsibility, essentially. That makes sense. I, I was asking for two reasons. One was, okay, how did you simplify? And the other one was, I kind of need that for DevChat. <laughs> so I was trying to find the best way to figure that out. So yeah, that, that makes sense. So is there some approach you're taking to this now as far as you know, maintaining the solution you have that you feel like is going to work out for you or, you know, so that you don't have all the technical debt. I mean, it, I'm not saying this well, but it seems like, you know, you found a simplified solution, but it's still not kind of a, a core Rails solution, right? Well, I think when I say deviating from the Rails core, I don't really mean talking about the structure of my application. I think that we do need to follow, quote, best practices in programming. So don't throw everything in a controller. Don't throw everything in a model. Separate responsibilities. So I think from that instance, creating a separate folder within your Rails application, like a uh, search folder or whatever else, you know, DHH would put it all in the models. He would create a episode search model within the models folder. And, you know, that's just his way of doing it. You know, it's a class, so it goes there. I really don't like doing that because I kind of like keeping my model folder for things that are actually touching the database. And then I like having separate folders for other kind of plain old Ruby objects that are separating or removing multiple responsibilities from a controller or model into its own class. Right. So how do you feel about some of the other deviations like, you know, using MongoDB and Mongoid or some of the other uh, ORMs that are out there? I think, what, what's the one from ROM? There's uh, SQL. Yeah. Or SQL. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how it's pronounced. I think it's SQL, but it's spelled out S-E-Q-U-E-L. Yeah. So I think that they have their own advantages if we're not talking about a Rails framework. So those are not Ruby on Rails specific. 
So if you need something like a much lighter framework like Rota or something else to solve whatever problem you have, then using something like SQL could really help. But as far as active record goes within a Ruby on Rails application, I've not had a need to deviate from that. Right. This episode is sponsored by Cloud66. I have a Rails application and I was looking for a flexible product that takes care of deployment and gives full control of my application so I can focus on developing my code. I came across Cloud66 for Rails, which deploys your Rails application onto any cloud or server. At first, I thought it's like Capistrano, but then I realized it's way more than just deployment and gets you to scale servers, replicate and backup databases, protect your servers with firewalls, and much more. It acts as your in-house DevOps team to build, deploy, and maintain your Rails applications. It's really developer-friendly, and no wonder that companies like Bearmetrics, Glossies, CareerBuilder, Discovery Channel, and many development agencies and I are using Cloud66. You can try Cloud66 Rails for free and get $100 free credits with the code rubyrogues-19. That's rubyrogues-19 at cloud66.com. The only thing that I've seen that really made me deviate from it at all, so I've used SQL in like uh, Sinatra apps or what's the other framework I've used? Uh, Cuba? Yeah, so I've used it over there in, in those, right? But for relational databases, I've always just used Active Record because it works fine. It kind of plays nice with everything else in Rails. And so I don't have to worry about it. But I have set up a couple apps on MongoDB. And really what it boiled down to was it just gave me a little bit more flexibility with my schema and, you know, kind of kept things in line you know, where I could drop fields out without necessarily having to specify them ahead of time. Or if I thought that I might get another field that I might have to throw in at this point or that point, I wouldn't have to go and migrate into my database. The flip side is, is that you wind up managing a list of fields somewhere, whether it's in your methods on your Mongoid classes or whether it's something else. And so... You know, it gets kind of interesting. It gives you a different set of trade-offs. But the trade-off around Mongoid is mostly, in my opinion anyway, around the database and what you get from the database. And so do you have practical examples of what you were getting that you would not get from Postgres or MySQL? Mostly it was just the schema flexibility. Okay. It also, I found that it translated a little more directly with JSON because Mongo uses a binary JSON format or it did when I was using it last. And so it was just, it was minor things like that that just aligned better with how people were using the application that I was building. But it, it was also mostly a thought experiment. I didn't have, there, there wasn't something that Mongo gave me that the relational database didn't that I absolutely needed, so. So Postgres and from MySQL 5.7 and later, they support the JSON data type. Yeah, they do. So... And you no. can put extra fields in there and you don't have to specify them in your schema either. Yeah. So for me, I've never saw a real need to switch to Mongo. At one point I did. And actually more recently, I thought that it might be a solution for me because I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mongo can be more performant than Postgres or MySQL because it is not a relational database. It can be, from what I understand, it depends a lot on how your data is structured and how you 
you know, what, what patterns you use to read and write to it, right? So if you're, mm-hmm. if you're read heavy or write heavy in specific ways, and, and I am not an expert in this, so I don't remember the exact details, but that's what I've kind of come to understand is under certain circumstances it is and other, under other circumstances it's not. The other advantage that I've heard about for MongoDB is that, so with Postgres, if you want to set up uh, like a set of databases, you know, so master, master, or master, slave, it's a little trickier than it is to set up uh, distributed or sharding with uh, MongoDB. But if you need heavy sharding or something like that, you're better off going with Cassandra or something like that because it's actually made for that. Yeah, so when I was working on Pingverse initially, one of the fears I had was that the data would start getting enormous. Right. So essentially, Pingverse is a uptime monitoring solution. So it's going to ping your website every minute of every hour of every day of every year. So one website pinging every minute, you're talking about adding hundreds of thousands of records to your database every year. And that's not, that's not a lot. But what if you have 10 sites or 100 sites running Right. So I initially, in my CSRB, created a bulk import, which would generate millions of records. So I was doing all my testing off of a database table, which had over 250 million records. And by doing that, I was not only able to quickly see any kind of slowness in my queries, but I was also able to make the application performant just using regular caching and active record without reaching for anything else. And so with over 200 million records on a single table, I'm able to query that in about 50 milliseconds. And for the general purpose of this application, even at larger scale, that's sufficient for me. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think that goes back to something that we have said multiple times on this show. And in this context, I'm saying before you go reaching for a different tool to make your application faster, look at yourself first because chances are your application is slow because you made it slow. (laughs) That's not what people want to hear. (laughs) (laughs) In every case that my application was acting slowly, it's because of a decision I've made. Yeah, it's true for you. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> it's, it's generally true in my case too, right? Where, yeah, you know, I made a decision and all of a sudden I have an N plus one query that's pulling thousands of records and it slows down. Or I'm grabbing all the fields instead of just the fields I need. Or I'm doing some kind of major munging to get it all formatted into JSON or something like that. And there's a simpler way to do it. And so it's usually my fault. And I've usually made a decision that is forcing me down that path. So I, I agree with you there. Yeah, and I think just not having proper indexes and stuff on your database table as yep. well, you know, that significantly can impact performance or creating additional fields which just aren't needed. Yeah. So you're tracking something in a huge table that you don't really need to track within there. You can have it off in a separate table you know, let's say categories, for example, if you're tracking what categories a certain record belongs to, instead of just embedding everything within this one table, you might be better off 
separating that relationship over to a different table. Yeah. One, one other question I have is, um, is the default testing library for Rails still Minitest? And do you use Minitest? So this is fun. <laughs> Are you deviating? Are you a deviant? Because I, I am. hands down love RSpec. Yes, I I prefer well. RSpec over everything else. However, in the past year, every application I've written, I have written without RSpec. I've used Minitest because that's what's included in the Rails core. And so that's what I stick with. And I say that because why am I using RSpec? Because I'm familiar with its syntax. I'm familiar on how to test with it and how to test fast. The problem with that is that that's nothing to do with my application. It is not providing my application any benefit. It is providing me benefit. So for the benefit of my application, I'm sticking to what's already included. You follow me so far? Yeah. Yeah, you're sticking to what's included. So unfortunately, but fortunately, I stopped using RSpec in new applications. I'm not going to go back and rewrite old applications, which already have pretty good test coverage that's using RSpec with Minitest. I don't see that that effort is really producing any fruit. But where this really all kind of came about was when I started making some new applications when Rails 6 was in beta, there were issues with RSpec not fully supporting Rails 6 yet. And so now we have this gem dependency of a testing library, so nothing to do with the actual business logic or function of my application, but just a development dependency, really, that's keeping me from making progress. So that's when I thought, like, okay, you know what? I love RSpec. It is my favorite test framework. However, it's hindering me from being able to do my job. Yep. (laughs) That's interesting. I've been learning Vue because I've had to, you know, jump back on the Views on Vue podcast. And so I've been spending most of my time over there and just haven't had a chance to play much with Rails 6 yet. So I hadn't, you know, I hadn't pulled anything up or tried to, you know, run any tests on it or anything using RSpec. So I, I didn't even realize that was an issue. And I think a lot of the gems that are well-maintained and have a large community backing will get updated pretty quickly. Yeah, And there's a few things that are not included in the Rails core. And I say not included, um, I say this kind of loosely. And specifically, I'm thinking of the Devise gem. Right. So Devise and Friendly ID both provide great functionality and saves a developer a lot of time. It's something that's reused in multiple applications, so it deserves to be its own gem. But it's something where I will reach for those on a new project because they work. They have a lot of backing. They work well. And it saves me a lot of time from having to implement it myself. But the Rails core does have the protected... I forget what it's called. uh, Protected attributes or password attributes where it will use bcrypt to store that attribute in the database. But... You know, again, device and friendly ID provide enough functionality for me to where I'm willing to take on those dependencies. Gotcha. Yeah. So it sounds like you stay pretty close to the core. And then, yeah, the, the widely used things, you just kind of 
count on them coming back up to speed pretty quick. Yeah, and you know, honestly, not only has it made maintaining these applications a lot easier, there's a less likelihood of something breaking. So I will pretty much be very liberal in doing my bundle updates. Mm-hmm. So on a lot of my recent applications, I'll do a bundle update and I'll have a fairly good confidence that things are still working. I still do my due diligence and test the application. I run my test suite. I run any kind of uh, security tests to make sure that things are still good there. However, I have a lot more confidence in my bundle updates simply because my bundle updates are outside of what is provided in a brand new Rails application is probably five to 10 gems at most. Really? Yeah. That, that's really interesting because I, I usually wind up pulling in a bunch of stuff and it just depends on the app I'm working on. But yeah, I usually get you know more than, more than five for sure. Yeah. And like you say, it depends on the application. And yeah. as it grows, you know, you might find like, oh, okay, well, I need to pull in a charting library. I'm not going to go write my own. So I'm going right. to pull in chart kick or something. Yep. Makes sense. And of course, this isn't including gems that are part of my dev or test dependency. And it's also mm-hmm. not including, quote, necessary gems like New Relic or Sentry or okay. even Stripe. So, yeah, now you're getting me down toward five. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting here going, wow, I must be a glutton for punishment or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, things that are actually contributing to your business logic. Right. No, that makes sense. So you're considering like the friendly IDs or the devices or the rescues or things like that. Yeah. Or Kaminari. Kaminari. That's Pagey. Yep. Gotcha. So do you have kind of a line that you would cross before you would actually, you know, get to the point where you're going to deviate then? Yeah. And... You know, as we alluded to before, the scenarios I'm talking about are the majority of applications, which are relatively small, not a massive amount of traffic, and they are either early in their development stages. So I think that it's eventual that we will have a unique situation which requires a unique solution. And it's in those cases, you have to think, okay, is this solution going to, one, box me into a infrastructure provider? So am I going to be using something in AWS that mm-hmm. is just not available anywhere else and now I am tied to their API? Or am I going to have to maintain this long-term, but I have very little understanding about what this new thing is that we are deviating from. So it raises concerns. And my goal is to introduce the least amount of technical debt as possible. Right. No, that makes sense. Huh. Well, I don't know if I have anything else to add or to ask you about. Are there other aspects of this that we didn't dive into? Well, I'm sure there are. But, you know, yeah, I think that those are really the bulk things. Cool. As a Ruby developer, you've probably used Redis for queuing and caching. But if you're like me, you've never completely understood it. You just followed the tutorial to set it up and then hoped it'd stay up. 
Now that I'm building my own services for other people, I realize that you and I often don't have the desire or time to run an ops or DevOps team or do it yourself. Plus, since you're not a Redis expert, you're not exactly sure how to know what it's doing. That's why I love Redis Green. No setup. It runs on any AWS region I want, so I can run it near me. And the tooling is amazing. I have to tell you about this feature, actually. It actually maps the memory you're using and tells you where all the memory is allocated. So this makes it really easy to see what's going on in your Redis setup. It also runs on AWS, so it scales easily and can alert you when it hits certain thresholds in performance or capacity. Sorry for going all fanboy on you, but I love this tool. Here's the thing. If you don't want to do ops or are already on Heroku or something, then use Redis Green for the rest. It's simple yet powerful. Check them out at redisgreen.net. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks then. Do you have some picks or do you want me to start? Oh, yeah, I do. So my first pick is an open source project called NextCloud. It is a self-hosted solution. And think of it like a Google Drive with Google Docs and spreadsheets and stuff, but you can all self-host it. And one thing that I absolutely love about NextCloud is that they also have a uh, site called scan.nextcloud.com where once you stand up your own environment on your own servers or your own virtual machine, wherever, this scan.nextcloud.com will actually scan your environment to make sure it's secure. And I think that's something that we just don't have in the community of open source software is I have this product or this product that I found is awesome, it's amazing, and I want to host it myself on my own servers but I want to make sure it's secure. So these open source projects aren't taking the step to ensure that their application is secure within your environment. Instead, they just say, yeah, it's open source, use it freely. But NextCloud does take that step, and I think it is awesome. And the other one is, uh, I take a lot of pictures of my kids, and one of the things that I, you know, I'm, I, I used to do a lot of photography back in the day, and a lot of, um, you know, I did weddings and stuff. But one of the things that I have missed from my DSLR days and film days is having a really good uh, camera with lenses that are vibration stable and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I do everything with my smartphone now because I'm not going to whip out a $1,000 SLR in front of kids who are throwing Play-Doh around. So. <laughs> Yeah, and I say Play-Doh nicely. It's usually not Play-Doh. It's usually their crap or something. Right. So I picked up the DJI Osmo 3. It is their newest version. It was just released a month or two ago. And I've never had a stabilizer on a phone before, but this thing is really cool. I'd say it's relatively affordable. It's about 120 bucks but it will really stabilize your videos and it does a facial following. So it'll recognize the face and it'll follow the face and stuff. So you can actually take some really quality videos with your camera or with your phone. Nice. All right, I'm going to throw out a couple of picks as well. The first one, I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to be long-winded on this one. It is my book. It's coming out on November 20th, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. So if you're looking for a job or you're thinking about uh, moving or you're worried about having some kind of stability to be able to fall back onto another job, then go check it out. It, it'll be on Amazon. It's self-published, so you can just go pick it up there. 
another thing that I'm putting together is uh, I'm using um, buymeacoffee.com and uh, setting up kind of tip jars. It's, it's a little bit like Patreon, except a whole lot simpler. And so uh, I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. I'm setting those up today. Then I have two Christmas movies that I'm picking on the different shows. And I'm probably just going to pick Christmas movies for the next few weeks since these episodes are going to be coming out you know, in, in the season between now and Christmas. So the first two that I'm going to pick, both of these have James Stewart in them. The first one is It's a Wonderful Life. I think that one is one that most people have seen here in the US if you watch Christmas movies around Christmas. It was made in 1946, I want to say, and uh, has James Stewart and Donna Reed, and it is, it is a fabulous movie. So yeah, I'm not going to say much more about that because I figure most people know what it is. And if you don't, go watch it. Um, kind of has a nostalgic feel for me. Uh, we used to watch it every year with my dad. And last Christmas was the first Christmas without my dad. So it has a little bit more of that feel, right? That, that nostalgic feel. The other pick that I have is, uh, you know, like I said, another Christmas movie with James Stewart in it. This is going to be the newest one I'm going to pick uh, or the most recent movie I'm going to pick. It was released in 1980. So that gives you an idea. I think most of the rest of the movies that I'm going to pick were made in either the 50s or the 40s. But there are a ton of terrific Christmas movies out there. There are a bunch that were made later than that that are classic, I think, in some way. But these ones just... I don't know what it is, but there's just something about them. But this one uh, from the 1980s is called Mr. Kruger's Christmas. And it's about this older man who's a custodian in a building. They're, they're not really specific about where it is. But yeah, he's kind of you know, he's trying to get that Christmas feeling, right? And so uh, you kind of see him have daydreams about different things. And, you know, he he meets a little girl who comes caroling to where he lives. And anyway, it's it's just, it's it's amazing. It, it really, for me, captures the the feeling of Christmas in the sense that Christmas is focused on Jesus Christ and then focus, the next focus is on our fellow man. And so you see that, you know, Mr. Kruger is kind of a lonely guy who isn't exceptionally well off in any way. And you really get to feel for him and recognize that Christmas is a time to be together and to recognize the humanity in other people. So um, anyway, uh, go watch it. It's terrific. And um, the, the music in it is by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Anyway, it's, it's amazing. So uh, I'm going to pick that as well. Yeah, I think that's that's it. So anything else you want to shout out about, Dave, before we uh, wrap up? Not today. All right, folks. Well, then uh, we'll be back next week. And until then, Max out. All right. Talk to you later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.